here's my hope for you tonight, that that tonight would be a night where you could really wrestle with, I, I believe, what the Gospel of Mark is kind of built, being, building to the most ultimate, important question you could ever wrestle with. And uh, if you have a smartphone, you can go to YouVersion. You can kind of follow along with notes and the verses there. Otherwise, you can take your Bibles out and go to Mark chapter 8. We're going to be in chapter 8 tonight. As you're turning there, here's what I want you to think about. You're going to maybe talk to your neighborhood, uh, two, three people right around you real quick. Who's the most famous person you've ever met? Okay? The most famous person you've ever met. And the famous is such one of those words, you're like, okay, well, maybe it's not famous to other people, but it's famous to me because it was in my niche and what I really liked and who I saw. But just whatever that may be, I want you to turn to someone next to you and just take 10 seconds and say, okay, here was the most famous person I ever met. Okay, ready? Go. I'm going to share one of mine. Most famous person you ever met. Most famous person you've ever met. How many of you said Brian Lee? Come on, come on. That's the most famous person. Okay. Um, that's just Brownie, Pastor Brownie points, if you said that for Brian. Um, see, famous person I ever met. I got to meet the governor. Ooh. I got to meet the governor just a few weeks ago, like this hobnob thing that I had no idea why I was even there. I sit on a board of like IBE education and it's like this tax credit thing and I just somehow I got invited and I'm in with all these other, you know, CEO type people and I'm like, yeah, I don't live in this world. And so uh, it was really interesting. It just, I tried to meet people and then the governor came by and one person I'm talking to is like CEO of Quest and I'm like, hi, I'm a pastor. Um, and so he's like, you ever want to meet the governor? I'm like, sure. Okay. So turn around and there's Jan Brewer right there and we're meeting the governor and I'm like, hey, how's it going? Didn't, I had nothing. It was really sad. I was trying to think of a cool question to ask and just say, hey, we're praying for you. It was a go-to. Was a, that's what I got. So um, didn't really have anything else to that. But uh, one, my wife uh, was telling me a story of how she met someone famous, and she was on the tour of the White House, right? Back when she was in high school is when Ronald Reagan was president. And they were on the tour, and they were kind of going through this hallway of one area, and then they heard footsteps, and there he was. As he came down the stairs, it was Lucky, their dog, um, of just Ronald Reagan's dog. Uh, Lucky was, you know, just famous dog. Um, but how many of you met someone famous before? In your mind, they would be famous. I was reading this week in a New York Times article. They asked this question: Who has been the most famous person over the last six thousand years? And New York Times through the MIT. MIT was kind of working these stats. I don't know how they all got it and everything. They came up with the top 10 famous people of the last 6,000 years. Who do you think is number one? Are you just saying Jesus because you're in church? Who do you think they have as number one? Jesus is actually number three. I know, that's what I thought. I was like, MIT? I thought you are supposed to be smart. Aristotle, they had his first, and I thought, lame. Plato was second, and I thought, I used to play with that as a kid. That's not that exciting. Um, Jesus was third, and I thought, obviously, they've never heard of Chris Tomlin's song, famous one. And so, wow, really thought some be more 80s fans here. So uh, I'm just going to move on. Um, 
Socrates, number four. Homer uh, Simpson. No, Homer uh, was nine. Julius Caesar, eight. But I, I got me thinking about famous people and, and this passage we're going to look at today. And I got to think of Jesus made third. Wow. I mean, I know Aristotle and Plato have influenced culture and influenced just thought life and just how you, how you perceive and philosophy and all those kind of things. But I, I look at Jesus and you realize, man, Jesus has impacted everything from art to architecture to the way we think to medicine and the field of medicine and how we care for people to children's rights and women's rights and to politics into every little realm and stream of society even if you're not a believer in Jesus and maybe you're here and you're kind of getting back into church and I just I think it's awesome that you're here and we want to be a church we literally mean this where everyone's welcome and each one matters because it doesn't have to be that you have to have everything figured out about this guy Jesus but tonight I just want to implore you to kind of lean in maybe a little bit closer maybe for a new way to see that this guy Jesus has really influenced and impacted history like no other we have a phrase around here we say a lot that we want to make Jesus famous because we really believe that Jesus is the single most famous person to ever impact and and leave an influence in society and history and humanity all throughout the centuries. I really believe that. And I don't just say that because I'm the preacher dude and I'm supposed to say that. I'm saying that because I've done my research for myself. And I cannot see anyone else who, I mean, think about it. Jesus dies, right? And this small little movement of what this Jesus movement was supposed to be should be snuffed out, right? It's up against the empire of Rome at its height of power. And yet somewhere over the next few hundred years, this little Christian group who claims something about this guy Jesus, who didn't just die, but who actually got back up and walked out of a grave, they began to change politics as it was known in that part of the world. How could that be? How could that be? Why in the world would that even happen? That on one particular day, it looks like he's dead and that he's gone, but something began to happen. And we believe Jesus came to communicate and to demonstrate what God is really like. And his influence matters. His impact was greater a hundred years after his death than during his lifetime. His impact 500 years after was huge in changing the realm of things. A thousand years later, his legacy began to lay the foundation of change of most of Europe. 2,000 years later, he's got more followers in every corner of the globe than anyone else. How could that have happened? Unless Jesus is maybe bigger than just a teacher or a good moral dude or a miracle worker. Maybe there's something more to this. Uh, There was a a Russian revolutionary, uh, Yoroslavsky, who back in the late 1920s, 1930s, formed this league called the League of Militant Godless. This was the league that was in the USSR to stamp out faith, to totally eradicate faith from the Russian Providence and Federation. That was their goal. And he had this after the frustration and the stubbornness of faith that he found, trying to eradicate it and and to get rid of it. He said these words, Christianity is like a nail. The harder you strike it, the deeper it goes. And I thought, here's a guy that's trying to get rid of faith, and yet he's coming to the conclusion that there's something that has some staying power with this. And I'm going to recommend a book to you. If you've never read uh, John Ortberg, 
his book called Who Is This Man? Uh, I highly recommend this. In fact, if you're skeptical, skeptical about Jesus and you're like, I don't know if I really believe that he is who he says he is, then I'm telling you it's worth your time to just read this book and the influence that Jesus has had all throughout history in every sector and realm of history and the influence he has had. And it leads us to this question that we're going to wrestle with tonight. It's this encounter in Mark chapter 8, right? So we've been making our way through Mark and leading up to Easter in this series called No Other Name, kind of looking at this name of Jesus and saying there's, there's no other name like his name. There's no other person that's ever lived that's like him. And tonight we're leaning into this conversation that happens along a trip and kind of a road trip that Jesus is having with his disciples. And no matter what you think about Jesus tonight, I hope that you are challenged a little bit with your perception and with your buy-in or your take on who he is. Because there's going to be a question here that is the most pivotal and uh, penetrating question that you can ever wrestle with for yourself and for us as a community. This question I'm referring to is where Jesus is walking along and toward the end of chapter 8 we read this in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? Hey, hey guys, let's take a Twitter poll and just get some feedback. Who do people say I am? Like, what's the word on the street? What's the, what's the hobnob? What do people think about me? What are they saying about me? Well, the text goes on. They say, well, some of you think, some people think you're John the Baptist, come back to life. Some people think you're like a reincarnated Elijah. Somebody, they're, they're thinking you're famous. They're thinking you're this prophet of old who's come back. Who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. And so Jesus is having this conversation with his disciples as they walk. And then he kind of turns the corner and he begins asking this ultimate question. And he, I, I picture Jesus stopping. Okay, they're talking about who he thinks he is. And I think he just stops in this walk. And I think he kind of catches their attention in this pause moment. And I think he's quiet. And all their eyes begin looking at him. They've stopped walking. The dust has kind of settled from the, what's been kicked up in their feet. And they kind of turn and they look at this man that they've been following for the last year and a half or so. And Jesus asked this question. Okay, okay. But who do you say I am? Friends, that is the most pivotal and predominant and ultimate question you could ever wrestle with. Because Jesus is asking a question here where you have to make a decision. And he's saying something. Okay, okay, who do people say I am? Okay, well, all these different things. And Okay, well, well, let's get personal. Who do you say I am? What's your answer to that question? Because you can't just dodge that question. Here's the truth about Jesus. You can remain neutral about Jesus for about five minutes. And then you're going to have an opinion. In fact, here's my guess. Even if you're not a religious person and you just came here to appease somebody because they invited you, my, my, my knowledge tells me this. You have an opinion about Jesus. It may be that he is a foe. 
that he that religion has corrupted society and, and he's to be ignored. That may be your opinion. But you have an opinion. Because you cannot remain neutral about this guy, Jesus. There's something about him that causes and creates and the struggle, this wrestle to say, there has to be an answer to this question. So we can live on the outside. Okay, who do people say Jesus is? And the church can spend a lot of time asking society about that. But at the end of the day, it goes to this whole other level with Jesus when he gets real personal and he says to you and to me, okay, but who do you say I am? That is a much deeper, bigger question. I don't know how many of you have ever been in a relationship. Maybe some of you are married here. Some of you are maybe single and you're kind of on the market. Raise your hand because there might be some cool people around you. I don't know. I'm okay. Um, but maybe you've been in a relationship, and maybe you've been in a relationship for a while, right? And then after you travel in that relationship for a while, don't you get to the place where you have the DTR? You know what I mean. Define the relationship. You have the talk, right? Where you're like, okay, we've been hanging out for a while, and we call each other boyfriend, girlfriend. We've been kind of walking down this relational road for a while, but hey, I want to know where we're going, Right? So you have the DTR, define the relationship talk, right? Friends, we are getting a sneak peek into the DTR of Jesus and his disciples right here. Okay, I know there's a lot of talk about who people think I am, but whoa, 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 whoa. Who do you say I am? Mark is doing this extremely calculated. Why? He has spent the last eight chapters creating a foundation about this Jesus in this good news. Remember, we talked about that in the very first week. This is good news, not good advice. This is good news that's life-changing, and he's building the case for who Jesus is. And it's at this point, this is the hinge moment in the entire book of Mark. Everything else from this point is going to move a certain direction. And what Jesus wants to know is his, his disciples, are they on board? Are they on board and defining this relationship and going the way Jesus needs it to go? Who do you say I am? See, there's no neutrality in that. It's either I am who I say I am or I'm not. That's the reality. This is the final exam, so to speak, for these disciples. What's fascinating to me, if you study a little bit of ancient history, is where this conversation happens. Jesus is walking with his disciples. The text tells you where. Caesarea Philippi, right? What's fascinating about Caesarea Philippi is it's the Canaanite land back in the Old Testament where Baal worship was huge, right? And so you go back to the Old Testament times and you have the... This is a very religious place. Got a lot of religious undertones to it. In fact, even then in the Greek influence, this is where the god Pan supposedly was worshipped. And there was some, some sick stuff that went on in the worship of the god Pan. And so what Jesus is saying here, in fact, Matthew 16 kind of gives you a little bit more of a glimpse into what's happening in this conversation that I don't even have time to get into. And I wish I did because it's, it's really good. It's really good. Matthew 16, if you want to read it. Because there's some proclamations and some things going on here that you have to understand Caesarea Philippi was Vegas before Vegas was Vegas. Okay? That's where this conversation is taking place. And in the midst of a very religious backdrop, with a lot of pagan worship, Jesus is saying, okay, whoa, whoa. Who do you say? I am. You've got to decide. There's no more neutral here. It's either I am or I'm not. And... Here we have Peter. 
speaks up. Peter often speaks up, right? For most of the disciples, when it's a quiet moment, I don't think Peter liked tension. As a fisherman, I don't think he, I think he was just like, oh, awkward. Okay, Jesus, I got it. Pick me. And Peter replies, you, you are the Christ. You're the Christ. Well, you have to understand in that moment, Peter's saying something. He's declaring something about Jesus that is incredibly profound. Some text, in, maybe in your Bible, says he, you're the Messiah. Messiah would be kind of a Hebrew word. Uh, you're the Christ. Christos would be kind of this Greek word. Literally, it just means anointed one. You're the one that all the scripture points to. You're that guy. That's what I believe you are. And Jesus in Matthew 16, you can read more, says, yes, Peter, God's revealed that to you. In Mark, it just says this notion that, that Jesus doesn't deny that claim at all. In fact, he receives that. It says, bing, 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 you got it, gold star. I am that. I am him. What's fascinating about that is that that set in motion probably a lot of emotions within the disciples. I mean, think about it. Your mama used to bounce you on your knee, right? Your mama used to do that. And they would tell you stories, right? Bedtime, you'd read bedtime stories. You'd hear stories about your culture, maybe. And what would be some of the, the stories that Jewish people would tell? They would tell of who? They would tell of the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, who is coming to set everything right. You are living under oppression from the Roman uh, occupation that's just... You're under their thumb all the time. All the time. You can never escape that. And so what do you long for? You long for a deliverer, right? You long for the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, to come and clear away evil and to have a final judgment and to set everything right. And so Jesus says, you're right, I am that King. Think about that. What words jump to mind when you hear the word king? What comes to your opinion? What do you begin to think about, about kingship and kingdoms and kings themselves? Who are they? What are they like? What do they do? Kings conquer, right? Kings win. Kings have serious power, don't they? That's a king. That's what kings do. They have this power, and they dominate. And so when Peter says this, it's set in motion. All of these emotions going on within these early disciples and these early followers of Jesus, where they're going, oh, yeah. It's all like Donkey Kong. And they're super excited, right? Because they're like, this is going to happen. We've been waiting for this. My mama told me about this. And it's happening. And you know what? Inner circle. Inner circle. That's where we are. We're the inner circle. We made it. That's the feelings. That's the emotions that have to be going on within these early disciples. I think sometimes we sterilize these passages and think, well, it's just, well, yes, you are the Christ. Awesome. No, I don't think it was like that at all. I think Peter's like, you're, you're the guy, you're the man. And Jesus is going, yep. And then something amazing begins to happen. Because all these emotions get fed within these disciples and they start thinking about all these different thoughts. 
all these notions of what that means and what kind of king Jesus is going to be. But Jesus begins talking different in this moment. And I think it creates this huge dissonance. Because it says that Jesus went on to say, okay, you're right. See, anointed one literally means that kings typically back in that, that time frame were anointed literally for a coronation. They were literally anointed and said, you are the king, you're set apart, you're going to be the one, you're going to be the Messiah, the king to end all kings, you're going to sit on David's throne forever, you are the one to reign forever, you are the Messiah, Jesus says. Or that Peter says to Jesus, and Jesus replies, Okay, you're you're right, but I'm a king probably unlike any king you've ever thought of. So before you kind of get wild with your imagination of where this is going to go, let me kind of tell you some things. And here's what he says, verse 31. Sorry, hang on, let me fix this here. Is that better? He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed. And after three days, he'll rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So much so that Peter actually pulls him aside and has this little side powwow, this little conversation. Jesus, whoa. Okay, you're the king, you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah, you're the one that's going to end all kingdoms. Ah, this whole death thing. Like, I'm cool if we're going to go fight and you're going to maybe die in death, like in that fight. But the whole idea that you're saying that you're going to die, like you're planning on it, not cool, Jesus, not cool. And what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. In fact, the word that Peter is using, he's, he's rebuking. Jesus. It's what Jesus said to demons sometimes. Remember when he healed people and he rebuked the demon and cast them out? That's the word that the text is using here that Peter has turned in, in an instant. He's gone from you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, to suddenly Jesus is talking way different than what he had pictured and he starts calling Jesus out and Jesus calls him out and says you have in your mind the ways of man not the ways of God. You, you don't get to call the shots here, Peter. And you're not seeing the whole picture. The Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must die. The Son of Man must be killed. Can you imagine hearing those words when your whole notion of kingdom and kingship and all of what that meant and the power and the prestige that was just moments away from you? And suddenly Jesus is talking like, what? Like that just creates this weird dissonance, doesn't it? You have to put yourself back in those days. And this is something that's incredibly important. The Son of Man must suffer. When we often think of Jesus referring to himself as the Son of Man, that's a phrase that he'll, he'll use often. Um, it's a phrase that comes from the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, uh, it talks about this anointed one, this Son of Man, who one who is like the Son of Man. This divine messianic figure who will come in the day and never before has anyone associated that person that they used to think about, write songs about, sing about, talk about, tell stories about. No one's ever associated the Son of Man with suffering. And yet Jesus in this moment says, okay, well, well okay, now that you get my identity, let me tell you the game plan. And it's way different than what you've ever pictured. That had to create this weirdness within them, so much so that maybe they didn't even want to believe it. Why, later on in the Gospels, are the, Jesus, are the Jesus' disciples so distraught when he's killed? 
It says here that he begins talking plainly about here's what's going to happen, here's what's going to go down, and then I'm going to come back three days later, right? We read it on this side of the cross and go, well, dude, that's simple. Jesus laid it out, ABC, here's it is. But back then, you have to understand how weird that would have been to hear that. Jesus, that doesn't match anything we've ever thought. And he begins associating. So this notion the Messiah would suffer made no sense. It seemed impossible. Why would that happen? How could you ever defeat evil and suffering by dying? Like, that doesn't even add up. It seems ridiculous and impossible. This is probably what offended Peter the most. Because his mama's songs that he used to hear when he was little said nothing about that. But now we start going back and reading like Isaiah in Isaiah 44 and 45 and 53, talking about the suffering servant. And now we see it on the other side of the cross. We go, okay, whoa, that's what that meant. The Son of Man must suffer. Why? Because sin is costly. Sin has a cost to it. Someone's got to pay the cost. It's either you or someone's got to step into your place and pay the cost for it. If I had a $100 lamp, right, in my house, which I don't know why I would have a $100 lamp in my house, um, but if I had a $100 lamp in my house and you came over and you're like, hey, that's awesome, and you slapped it and it fell off and broke, and you'd be like, whoa, oh, my bad. Somebody's got to pay for the lamp, right? Either I got to absorb the cost or you got to shell out 100 bucks, right? That's the deal. But someone has to pay for it. There's a brokenness here that someone's got to step into. And sin has this judgment to it, that the Son of Man must suffer. The Son of Man must suffer these things and must be killed. The word must is really critical here. In fact, if you have a pen, just underline it. Four different times, it's this must. This must happen. Jesus is speaking to something, that there is a cost to sin before a holy and perfect God. And there is an inescapable debt that has to be paid. And so Jesus is saying, look... Um, I'm going to take that for you. The only way God can pardon you and not judge you is for him to step in and absorb the penalty of that. And so Jesus says, this is the mission I'm on. My kingdom is not about power this way and about powering up. It's actually about powering down and giving, not getting. And in that, I'm going to conquer. And I'm going to conquer a greater foe than you even realize you're under. Because you think it's just about Rome. And it's a whole lot bigger than that. And so Jesus says, here's the plan. I have to die in order to absorb God's judgment on your behalf. I'm here to step in and before you. The writer of Hebrews says this, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Now listen, blood is not magical. It's not this mystical view about blood. In fact, the Bible has the term blood. Every time you read the word blood, it means that life was given or taken before its natural end. Okay, so life was taken or given before it's natural. And and a life given and taken is the most extreme gift and price that can be paid in this world. We know that. We see that. With people who sacrifice their life on behalf of their other part of their infantry. That they they say, I'm going to take this blow to save you. And we call that the ultimate sacrifice, right? And it means something. And there's life there with that. Only in giving his life could Jesus have made the greatest possible payment for your sin and mine. He was absorbing the judgment on our behalf. That's amazing. And so it's not this weird mystical view. It's this incredibly spiritual, holy view. 
about a life given up for another. He goes on, verse 34. He continues. He has this little debate with Peter that he goes on. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? Jesus is saying, look, I am a king, but I'm a king with a cross, not a scepter. And the cross is more powerful than you'll ever know. And if you want to be my follower, you're going to have to follow suit. See, the Greek word for life here is this idea of this is a statement about psyche, where we get our word psychology from. It, it speaks of this idea of, of your identity, your personality, your selfhood, what makes you you. Jesus isn't saying, okay, you have to give up that and become robotic. What he's saying is you have to give up this identity thing. You have to give up this craving. He is saying you don't build your identity on what you gain in this world. You build your identity on me. And I'm the one that gives you value. What good is it for you to to gain everything you can possibly grab and hold on to and yet lose the very thing that's the core of who you are? So don't build your life trying to attain and achieve and acquire all this stuff because you'll... You'll die empty, you'll die alone, and you'll die with a hole in your heart. It can't be filled. It's this unending pursuit that's never enough. And so Jesus is saying, you build your life on me. Every culture points to certain things and says, okay, if you have this, if you attain this, if you acquire this, if you achieve this, then you'll have value, right? And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You have value because I'm here on a search and rescue mission for you. Your value comes from me, not what you do or what you achieve or how you perform. It's not about getting those accolades. You can pursue them, that's fine. Just don't make it your ultimate pursuit. Because if you make it your ultimate pursuit, you're going to miss out in what you're really wanting and craving. And that's significance and meaning and purpose. And I'm the source of those. Jesus is saying, look, you follow me. And the way of my life and my pattern is that not of this acquiring, achieving, and just tacking on more and more and more. It's actually a life of giving. And it's a life of serving. And it's different than maybe what you think. It's not about climbing the corporate ladder. You can do that. Just make sure that it's leaning up against me, not just these other dreams and other pursuits that take you further and further away from me. Jesus is kind of calling a couple people around. In fact, the text says that he calls these crowds and he calls us disciples, right? Crowds and disciples. Maybe two groups of people there. Those fans of Jesus and those who are followers of Jesus. And a fan is someone who says, okay, well, I admire Jesus. I admire what he said. I admire what he did. They're supportive, but they're fickle. Their, their commitment can change. It can fade. It can, it can falter. That maybe I've got the Jesus jersey on, but hey, if, if things get too weird, I can take that off and sell it on eBay. Right? That's a fan of Jesus. I like Jesus. I admire him. And then there's this other group of people that says, okay, no, I'm a follower of Jesus. I actually believe what he said. And I want to lay claim that my life begins to pattern more and more. Just the two things I want to give you. 
um, about being a follower of Jesus. I think there's two really clear things that are laid out in this passage. One is this. Followers confirm Christ's claim. Followers confirm Christ's claim. Okay, but, 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 okay other people, what do they say about me? Okay, fine. Who, what do you say? Who do you say I am? And a follower gets to a place in life where they've said, Jesus, I believe you really are the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who's come to set everything right. And maybe it wasn't through power, but it was still an overtaking of a greater foe than I even realized existed. And the foe was the sin that was in me. And it was holding me back from even having life with you. And you overcame that on my behalf. See, a lot of people want to look at Jesus and they want to look at his actions and his attitudes and they never deal with the claim of, is he who he says he is? Is he really the Christ? Is he really the anointed one? They want to turn Jesus into their own little image, kind of like this spiritual religious buffet. I'll take a little bit of this and I'll take a little bit of that and I'll put it all together and I'll mash up and I'll have my own little Christ-like image. One that I'm comfortable with and one I can manage and one that I can maintain and I can control. But friend, don't settle for a Christ that is a figment of your imagination over the Christ who is the divine incarnation. Yours has no power. And Jesus has all the power to help you with everything you'll ever face into all eternity. Don't settle for something you create. Don't be a fan. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he's not. That's the question Jesus is raising in this statement. Do you believe me, or do you think it's a joke? That's the question. The ultimate question you have to wrestle with. It's the greatest question you'll ever put your mind to, that you'll ever spend your life looking at. Fans ride the bandwagon. They sport the jerseys, they know the cheers, but when the game starts, they are where they are. They're in the stands. They're admiring from a distance. And Jesus never came to get more fans. He came to have followers. And followers get to a place in their life where they say, I believe Jesus is who he says he is. I may have questions. I may have doubts. I may still have some struggle spots. But I believe to the best I know how he is who he says he is. That's where you step over the line from being a fan to a follower. Maybe a second thing is this. Followers conform to Christ's pattern of living. He goes on back to verse uh, 834. Then he called the crowd to him. And he said he had the crowd and the disciples, these fans and these followers. He said, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to be my follower, they must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. They've got to follow me. This idea of, they've got to follow me, they've got to come after me. This notion of to come after someone is like a, a lover who pursues their beloved. It, it's like a student who leans into what the teacher is saying and wants to gain every bit of knowledge that they have. It's like a servant who gladly follows the one that they are serving. They pursue. They're denying themselves is to recognize that there are two ways to run life. It's either my way or God's way. And as a follower of Jesus, see, if I'm a fan, I can run life my way, right? I can say, well, I admire Jesus. He's cool. He's got some good stuff. But I'm going to run life my way. But if you step over the line and say, okay, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, now you're actually letting him have the lead in life. And the way that you manage your relationships 
in the way you manage your speech, the way you manage your thought life, the way you manage your money, the way you manage your resources, everything about it. You're saying, I'm putting a new filter on. It's like I did this wedding yesterday, right? So we're at this beautiful winery setting. Uh, It's gorgeous outside. I have these two people that I've known since they were in junior high. Right, it's so cool uh, to be able to to be a part of being able to to celebrate with Jess and with Gil, and just to, to kind of see them come together as husband and wife, and to to be in this moment. And here's what we talked about several times: is okay, you've been a single person your entire life, all 25 years, right? And now you're going to get married, and you got to have a new filter because where marriage is getting in trouble is when two people are married and they keep living like they're single. And they still have a single filter. Okay, this is what I do. And I do this. Because this, I'm the king of my own castle. I, this is just the way I do things, okay? You deal with it. No, 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 no. You made a general decision to get married. And in that general decision, now all your specific decisions have to follow suit with that. And it's about changing your filter. It's about saying, I no longer see life as just me single. I now see life as it's us. It's oneness. And it's not that I give up who I am. I don't change that, but I have a new filter in how I see things. I made a general decision that I now begin to make all my other specific decisions around. And I get to pursue and say, okay, it's not about me living this way anymore. It's not just all about me. It's about this other person. It's about living life with them and viewing life this way. I begin to pattern my decisions that way. And maybe that's the clearest picture I can give you of what Jesus is saying here. Look, I got lots of fans, Jesus is saying, who admire and and they they like what I talk about. And they'll be in the crowd. And that's cool. But I can't change their life as a fan. I can't use them to change the world as a fan because fans are fickle. They wear the jersey one day and they got it on eBay the next. But a follower, man, I can use them. I can change them. I can can work in their life and be used by them to do something greater than what they ever thought possible. And so what Jesus is saying here is, look, I want you to choose. Who do you think I am? Who do you say I am? And if I am who I said I am, then then step over the line. Stop being a fan and be a follower. And as a follower of Christ, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, okay, what does that mean to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is? What does that mean in everyday life, on your Mondays and on your Tuesdays and on your Thursdays, in front of your friends, in front of the people that you're co-workers with, the people that you're on a team with? What does it mean to say, I, I live my life because I believe he is who he says he is? I confirm it. What does it mean to have your life conformed to have more and more a pattern that this year I'm more like Jesus than I was last year. And I react like Jesus and I love like Jesus and I interact like Jesus would. What does it mean to have that changed? Because here's what I know. Back then there were two groups of people that were in this conversation. The crowd and the disciples. The fans and the followers. And here's what I know tonight. There's two groups of people in this room. You might be a fan of Jesus. You've admired him from afar and from a distance. That's great, Jesus. Good job. 
And maybe even now, you sense deep within your heart, you're going, I think Jesus is wanting a little bit more than just a fanship. For me, just to sport his jersey every so often. I think he's wanting a little bit more. Here's what I'm going to invite you to. Whatever camp you're in there, there's a moment here for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, then here's my question to you. See, followers come after Jesus. They pursue Him to know Him and to be like Him. Followers pursue. They give up looking and approaching life on their own basis and their own way. They put a whole new filter and say, Jesus, this is your life. You bought me with your grace and your love. I didn't deserve it, but you pursued me. And it's no longer just me who lives. It's, it's Christ in me. And we get to do this together. And we're connected in oneness. And I take up my cross and the challenges that come my way and the assignments God gives me, I pursue them. And when I fall, I get back up. And I don't stop pursuing. That's what a follower does. Even when they're confused and even when they're struggling with doubt and even when they're struggling, they say, Jesus, you pursued me and I want to pursue you. And maybe you're here and you're a fan of Jesus. And you're like, okay, uh, this Jesus guy's pretty cool. I like the way you guys talk about him. I like those songs. They're kind of cool. They do something within me. And I want to say to you, that's awesome. And if you need to keep being a fan, that's cool. But I want to give you a chance tonight to maybe say, maybe I'm tired of being a fan. Maybe I want to be a follower. I want to step over that line and kind of change the camp I'm in. The Bible says this in Romans 10, that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is who he is, he was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. There's no doubts about it. And I'm going to ask all of us to kind of close our eyes, just kind of bow our heads, to kind of take some space. And maybe you're a follower and you just want to take some time, just you and God pray. But if you're here tonight and you're a fan, you've been a fan of Jesus, I want to give you an opportunity just to lead you through a little prayer. Our, our mission here is inviting people into a relationship with Jesus. Everything we do is about that. So everything we do, listen, is about you. It's about you as a fan. To maybe get to the place where you'd say, I want something more than just to be a fan of Jesus. I want to be a follower. And the best I know how, I want to begin aiming my life that way. And if that's you, I'm just going to pray this simple prayer. Nothing magical about these words. And I'm just going to invite you to pray along with me. Something like this. Jesus, I want to acknowledge my need for you. I believe the best I know how that you are who you say you are. That you offer forgiveness for my sins. And today I turn toward you. I accept your grace. I now call you friend. You're my hope. Come into my life and lead me forward in your grace. Thank you for loving me. Empower me to follow you. Now, with your head bowed and eyes closed, I'm just going to ask, man, if that's you today, 
I don't want you to celebrate alone. Because what you just did was answer the ultimate question that Jesus asked in this passage. And he asked you today, who do you say I am? And if you were a fan and you're like, man, I prayed that prayer with you, Jack, and I'm in. I want to be a follower. I just want to ask you to raise your hand right where you're at. No one's looking around. It's awesome. We're going to move into a time of communion here. And if that was you, I don't want you to celebrate alone. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do. During this time of communion and these next couple songs we've got, we've got some space, we've got some time. I'd love to celebrate with you and to cheer you forward. And if you don't have a Bible, I've got a Bible with your name on it tonight. That if you've moved from being a fan to a follower and you prayed that prayer with me, I'm going to be back, kind of your back right by the exit door there um, in the shadows, okay? And I'm just going to invite you in the next couple songs just to make your way there. Um, pretend you're going to the bathroom if you want. And just sneak over there and just say hi. I'd love to just pray with you real quick, give you a Bible, and be able to follow up with you this week, just you and me. Um, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to move into a time of communion. If you are a follower of Jesus and you say, man, I just want to acknowledge again. And remember, Jesus' body broken for me, his blood given for me. That's what communion is. It's remembering. It's a symbol. Remembering back to his life and his death. And more importantly, his resurrection that fuels us to be a follower of, of him. So, Father, I thank you for the opportunity just to, to learn about Jesus a little bit more tonight. To lean into him. And I pray as we take communion and as we sing these songs, God, that we would worship. We'd aim our heart in your direction. And that you would grow us to be followers of Jesus who are potent and power, powerful in this world. Not because of who we are, but because of who you are. And that you would allow us the partnership of being a follower with you to bring your hope and your grace and your love and to put it on display in this world that people who are far from you, who are maybe a fan of you, would see you in a new light and in your beauty and one day would step across the line and say, I want to be a follower of you. God bless these who have prayed that. Would you bless them this week? Welcome them to your family. God, we're so grateful for Jesus and to stand in this moment. So we ask that you be in these moments of worship and communion, that you move within our hearts now.